From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and your host for today's show on sexual harassment and sexual equality in the workplace. Given the recent news about Roger Ailes at Fox, sexual harassment is front and center again, bringing attention to a pernicious problem that's actually quite confusing to navigate, whether you're a victim of it, a witness to it, or an employer trying to address it within your organization. It intertwines with a whole series of issues that affect women, including law, public policy, and education. Sexual harassment is really too complex to address in a tweet or a soundbite, which is why we're bringing in the big guns today to help us understand these issues more fully. In our first half hour, we're going to be joined by the extraordinary Jane Hall. Jane's an American University professor and a former Fox News commentator. She also wrote a recent fabulous New York Times op-ed piece on Roger Ailes that I highly recommend you read. Um, and then we're going and explore the broader legal complexities um, and societal complexities surrounding these issues with Emily Martin, who's a member of the General Counsel and the Vice President for Workplace Justice at the National Women's Law Center in D.C. If you have a question for Jane or you'd like to share your experiences with us, we'd love to hear from you. So give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And Patty or our new fab- fabulous assistant, Allie, will come in from the booth and uh, tell us what you want to know. Um, so once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And while you consider what you'd like to ask us or how you'd like to join in, we're going to get the conversation started with our first guest, Jane. Um, Jane Hall is a professor of journalism and media studies at American University and a former Fox News Channel commentator. And she specializes in issues of importance to young people and current politics. She's been an active voice in the recent conversations regarding Roger Ailes. Um, and she recently interviewed Anita Hill at American University's campus. So uh, couldn't find a better expert to join us here on Women at Work today. So Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. We, we are, too. So, Jane, sexual harassment seems like such a pernicious issue. It's confusing to men and women alike. It's powerfully damaging to those who are affected by it. Why is it that it's so often ignored and so hard to address? I think that actually we are quite confused about what sexual harassment is because, like discussions of sexual assault, you might think it's about sex, (laughs) and it's not. It's about power, and it's about a power imbalance. And I think many women have had the experience of being in a professional situation, and then suddenly, uh, you know, someone makes a comment that objectifies you and makes you feel uncomfortable. And I think that it's a complicated issue for women because, as Anita Hill said, and I was so thrilled to be able to interview her and look back at what happened to her 25 years ago, which was not pretty. Uh, But, you know, she talked about how women need to be believed. And a second point I think that needs to be made is that women need to feel that something will actually happen. And I think what, what happens sometimes and seems to have happened with Roger Ailes is that he created and ruled at Fox News and he made a lot of people's careers and he has had an outsized influence whatever you think about it on our political discourse and you know this is a person who 
had enormous uh, influence over the careers of a lot of people. And I'm a student of women and the depiction of women in the media. And as I mentioned in my piece, when you have a woman in a short skirt and a tight sweater next to a, a male anchor who's fully clothed, that is a power imbalance. And that is what Fox specialized in. But one other issue that I want to bring up is that if you mention that, then some women have written columns saying that the women who dress that way were participants in their objectification. So that's also something that happens to women. So we've got a lot of complicated issues here. Right. I want to unpack a few of them. Um, And then we can come back because I'm sure the list grows. So the first thing that you were mentioning to us is that um, there's this fundamental problem that women are not believed when they report sexual harassment. Well, or they don't think they'll be believed. Okay. You know, I think we've. I think that the 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 Fox News case and the fact that Roger Ailes was forced to resign. I mean, we should mention that he denies these allegations, but the fact that reportedly a number of women have been coming forward and that this had consequences. Even though, you know, I would object to the fact that he got a $40 million payout. (laughs) Yes, that seems like a prize. consequence. But uh, I think these these cracking open of large corporations, uh, and again, I'm not drawing too strong a parallel, but Bill Cosby, Mm -hmm. finally, finally uh, being called to account, you know, many, many years later in, in criminal investigation. These highly public cases, I think, do embolden women to come forward. I mean, Anita Hills said she couldn't believe she was still, you know, talking about this 25 years later. And she was reluctant to come forward. If you'll recall, she didn't even, she wrote a a deposition and then was outed by people who wanted her to testify. And she was not believed. And she was told that, you know, that one of the members of the committee said she had some kind of a fantasy about Clarence Thomas. Right. so so that was not a very good chapter, but it did lead to an increase in women coming forward and an increase, I believe, in in the sense that women need to step forward and that you know you know when this is happening and you need to step forward. And, and you're bringing up two big points, and I want to make sure that we address both of them. So one of them is that we know that when the women who are brave enough to come forward, um, what follows is with the visibility uh, of their cases, it does embolden other women to come forward. So as the first came forward at Fox, then others came forward, including witnesses. With the Bill Cosby case, as some of the women started to come forward, the others followed. And that um, the YouGov Huffington Post ran a poll um, where they said that 75 percent of all people who experience don't report it. Yes. However, um, over time, claims by women are increasing, particularly in after key cases like Corey Kioka and the military, mm-hmm. Coast Guard case rape cases, Coast Guard rape cases. Um, the reports increased in a three-year period from 3,600 people to 5,500 people to 6,100 people. Mm. And what's interesting is it's not suggesting that there are more rape cases. It's about the question of, of being heard and standing up and being be, believing that you will be believed. Well, exactly. And I think in, in the case of Fox News, people probably assumed that nothing was happening and that people knew you know, I've talked to people who say they, they were shocked to hear this. So I don't think it was 
you know, I can't speak to that. I mean, I, as I mentioned in my piece, mm-hmm. I, I came in and out of Washington and, and was not there on a daily basis. But there are there is a sense, I think, that if you are in a situation where this is part of the culture and you don't see uh, what happens and, and you don't see that there are consequences, and in the case, frankly, of Fox News, you have uh, – you know, payments made to people to settle and non-disclosure agreements. I mean, that buttons it up. I have to say that reminded me of, you know, the Spotlight movie and the mm-hmm. Catholic Church making sealed records, you know, and settling with people and moving people around. Now, that's an extreme example, but the cult of, of this culture of secrecy around this and the idea that the woman is somehow responsible. I yes. mean, we still are dealing with that. Yeah, and that's see and and it's the combination that a victim could be responsible. Um exactly. the misogyny that was reflected in Anita Hill's case where if she that in saying she was a victim of sexual harassment, the senators turned it around on her and suggested that this was her erotic imagination. Yes. And also, you know, why did she follow him? I mean, I had relatives in Texas, you know, where I'm from, who said, well, you know, she must. Why did she follow him? And any woman would know as a producer, Shelley Ross, who just wrote a piece about being harassed, according to her, by Roger Ailes many, many years ago, said, of course, you know, you're a woman, you're in a position and you you were working for somebody who was powerful. I mean, you were in a vulnerable position, and you can say, oh, go, go leave, which is what Donald Trump said he hoped his daughter would do. But that's not—that's both um, protecting the person who's guilty and punishing the victim doubly, because most women cannot just get a new career exactly. and leave and get a new job. Exactly. I mean, I, it's just clueless. It's, it's a kind of cluelessness. But I do think, you know, that there have to be consequences for the people who are doing this. It, it can't just be— speak up and there are more cases reported. I think one other thing, Laura, that is interesting is you have more women. You know, there was a whole class of 1992 that ran for office because they were so appalled by the treatment Mm -hmm. of Anita Hill. And there's, you know, Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is on the Military Affairs Committee. She's pushing regarding sexual assault in the military. Part of it, I think, is having women in positions of some authority to to look into this and and say, excuse me, but, you know, this is something we need to deal with. This is an important issue. Absolutely. So I want to go back to that issue of being in a position of authority, because the other thing that you were noting as you were talking about the culture at Fox News, and I think what's important is that this doesn't only exist at Fox News. This gets replicated in a lot of different environments, is with a particularly potent combination. Um, You had an individual... with enormous power, um, the dollars at stake for people's salaries and the income to the organization are very, very high. Um, and where the gender dynamic of being on air was also an important part of the recipe to what was going on there, both in the problems that were occurring and to the effectiveness on the air. Yes, I think that's true. And again, you know, you have to stipulate that Roger Ailes denies these cases, but many, many women reportedly have come forward. So, you know, I think television is particularly difficult. Uh, you know, I heard somebody make a bad joke. I've heard a number of bad jokes uh, <laughs> about about television and television executives. And again, once women get into more powers, powerful positions, uh, this begins to change. But one joke I heard was that anchors on local TV news 
look like second marriages, a bad joke about second marriages <laughs> and anchors, meaning that you had a much older guy and a much younger woman. And that kind of dynamic and that, that view of women as mm-hmm. sort of an accessory, uh, you know, it's changing. It's really changing. Uh, you know, Rachel Maddow does not feel the need to dress that way. No, I mean, however, I have to say this has been an issue in our own home. Every morning my daughter and I watch the news together. Yes. And um, she even noted to me that all of the women on our local news stations in the morning, from, with the exception of a couple of anchors, are in skin-tight spandex dresses, mm. the kind that if you weren't wearing Spanx, you could not be in public. <laughs> well, you know, someone told the me The men are not dressed like that. Well, I know. And see, boy, I mean, you're bringing up a third subject, which is how our daughters are being encouraged to dress. Yes. Which, I have a 19-year-old, too. <laughs> and, you know, I I think this is bad role modeling. Yes. Uh, where, where it gets tricky is saying that a woman who dresses that way should be, first of all, you know, I mean, the, the dynamics, as you said, are, are, are the symbolism is terrible. Yes. The symbolism is the woman is sexy and the guy is authoritative. And but, those two things never shall meet, right? Right. So it's both about the message that's being sent out. But it also, I'm curious, I think it suggests something about the internal culture of decision making, mm. about how women are positioned within an organization. And that they're not positioned as the people of power. Well, it's getting better. You know, uh, it is it is getting better. I know women who are in management positions at, at the news networks. Uh, it is getting better, but it is still true that the representation, certainly of women and also of diversity in in all major media, is still way, way behind where it should be, including, you know, at Facebook and and Silicon Valley. It's it's true. By the way, the extraordinary woman I'm talking with today is Jane Hall, who's a professor of journalism and media studies at American University, former Fox News Channel commentator, and the author of that fabulous New York Times op-ed piece on Roger Ailes. Um, so, Jane, the, going back to this issue of organizational culture, can we return to this issue of power and fear and why sexual harassment is about power and people not reporting it is about fear? Well, I think you have fear of reprisals. Mm -hmm. And again, if such a premium in in the particular medium that I have covered for many years, if such a premium is on looks, then I think it becomes even more potent uh, because, you know, there are men on television who uh, have been allowed to age gracefully. Uh, They would say they have to be attractive, too. But it's potent in the sense that the outward symbolism of the woman and the man is still is still um, disproportionate in the power. Again, that's changing. But if you add into that the fact that it's really a judgment call as to whether somebody's good on the air or not. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's not I'm on a I'm on a manufacturing line with you and you can try to harass me but I can I can beat you on the construction crew, you know, it's, it's, it's objective and it's in the culture that looks are so powerful. So I think organizationally, it is still true that men are still in the position of, of hiring uh, and still in the positions of power. Uh, and when the representation of women is better, I think that it begins to change. You know, I'm sure you've seen that in every corporation you've ever looked at. Uh, and it certainly changed in the Senate. Look at what's being looked at 
by by senators who mm-hmm. are women. Uh, not that that's all they need to look at, you know, but the whole idea that an organization is led by a man and that in the case of Roger Ailes, it was a cult and he was making nearly a billion dollars in profit. From what I've read, Fox did not even know about the $3 million uh, settlement that he reportedly made. And, and again, I'm quoting the New York Magazine reporter who's been right on all of this all along. How could you have a settlement with someone that no one at 20th Century Fox knew about? Right. And How can that's it even the be kind binding? of culture right. of secrecy and, and, and power that, again, you know, I, it's so complicated because Roger Ailes is a, is a genius at television, you know? Clearly. But also created a television station whose um, central construct was this pugilistic approach. Exactly. This combative, very male approach to creating opposition. Absolutely. And that's what that's what I was trying to get at in, in my piece. I think we would not have the politics and the political discourse we have today without Fox News uh, being created. And there is some deep connection between misogyny and bullying. Yes. And I don't, you know, again, I sound like I'm romanticizing women, perhaps, but there is. There's some connection between the comments that are made about women and the, the comments that are, frankly, being made about Hillary Clinton. Um, and, you know, it's, as you say, it's very hard to tease this out. But that kind of attitude, I think we've seen it spill over in very ugly ways in the current presidential campaign. Without a doubt. And it goes back to um, a misogyny, that in this battle about power and protecting power, um, accusing the women who threatened to take the power away, the conversation devolves into a kind of ugliness that is based on hatred because of gender. And we saw it for the first time this publicly with Anita Hill. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, I want to ask you, you had this rare opportunity to talk with her, to interview her um, uh, for the American University students. Um, Could you tell me what that was like and what the biggest surprise was in talking to her? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I had done a lot of research and gone back and looked at the clips from 1992. The, the news peg for this was that Kerry Washington played her in a wonderful HBO movie called Confirmation, and it very skillfully wove the two together. What was interesting to me, well, there were a number of interesting things. One thing that was very interesting to me was when I solicited questions from the students, they immediately went to sexual assault. They wanted to talk about sexual assault on college campuses. Which is a huge problem. Which is a huge problem and a huge issue. And I was proud of myself for (laughs) saying, whoa, okay, so this is how I viewed it when I watched her 25 years ago. And they immediately went to that. The other thing that was very interesting was the intersectionality of race and gender. Mm -hmm. And I did ask her about Clarence Thomas's infamous, you know, comment that he felt he was at a high-tech lynching. And again, you know, he is always denied what what she said uh, happened. But what was most interesting to me about her, I guess the biggest surprise was she said this went to his fitness to serve. Mm -hmm. And that's why she felt she had to testify. And again, if you know, people don't remember, it was just one day. You think it went on forever. Was it really only one day? Only one day. And, and this was in 1991 right. when Clarence Thomas was nominated as a Supreme Court justice. Right. And she, you know, was somebody mentioned 
her name and she was called and she decided to write this deposition and then someone outed her to the media and then she was called to testify. And she, it was pretty ugly for her all the way through. And, and I think what was remarkable to me was, was her tone of this went to his fitness to serve. I mean, she is a law professor. Yes. She now teaches at Brandeis. And that was what she felt was important, that these kinds of cases would be coming before the Supreme Court and this needed to be known. It was an unbelievably brave act on it her was. part. Um, and if you think now about still 25 years later, there are all of these women who are frightened to step forward because of very real fears of retaliation, um, both uh, direct and indirect, as a result of their making these accusations. As a black woman in the American public at the time, no one had ever done this, especially for a man about to enter such a powerful role. Well, exactly. And one of the interesting things, and again, I, I, I did a ton of research on this. One of the most interesting things, speaking of people needing allies, was that Charles Ogletree, who was a Harvard, young Harvard professor at the time, uh, you know, he's one of Obama's mentors, um, told her that he would he would work with her because he was surprised at how no no one in no no one in the black male community as he put it was stepping forward and i thought that was very interesting so that case had a whole bunch of different ramifications but but one, like you were suggesting before i think part of it also comes back to power right and um the deep conflict that people had of what does it mean to have an African-American man on the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and the people that wanted to preserve the possibility of that. And then what did it mean for an African-American woman to step forward? And then um, what did it mean for women in America when the senators just excoriated her for this? Well, they really did. And, you know, including the Democrats, uh, you know, people people when Joe Biden was considering running for office, uh, there were a few articles that said this was going to come up for him. I mean, he later was a big sponsor of the Domestic Violence mm -hmm. Act and, you know, has done many other things since then. But the Republicans went after her and he didn't really help her that much. And I think that's very interesting. You see that in the movie. I, you know, again, I went back and looked at a lot of it. But what was interesting to me watching it as, as a, you know, a pretty young woman was I – the the racial piece didn't show up to me as much as I saw a woman. You talk about a symbol. She's looking up at all that array of men, right? Yes. <laughs> all white men. She's raising her hand. She, you know, is testifying. And I think that image is also a very striking image, that they were all white men. She was there. And, you know, some of those senators were absolutely terrible to her. Uh, it was like making a, a victim of assault repeat over and over what had happened after she'd already testified to some pretty, at the time, kind of gross, as we would have called it, uh, behavior. Yes. You know? The person that I'm talking to about this is Jane Hall, who's a professor of journalism and media studies at American University, former Fox News Channel commentator, um, who's passionate about working with students and particularly young women. So, Jane... 
it's particularly important to me uh, what you said about the first question that the students asked you um, and that they dove into sexual assault. We recently had Peggy Orenstein on the show who's written a fabulous mm-hmm. book, uh, Sex and Girls, um, or Girls and Sex, and also talks about n- not dissimilarly a climate and a culture that's on college campuses that starts with a certain amount of um, highly gendered behavior, differentiations in power that leads first to sexual harassment and then all too often to sexual assault, in this case motivated or fueled not by money but by drinking. Yes, uh, that is that is certainly a huge issue. If you look at the Kaiser Family Foundation survey that was done with the Washington Post that found one in five college students said she'd been the victim of sexual assault of mm-hmm. some kind, uh, drinking is implicated in a huge way, and binge drinking, drinking to blackout, uh, and, you know, the cases that I have heard about and have read about, um, we're confused about <laughs> about what is consent, but, but why we have this terrible drinking going on on college campuses uh, and what that leads to, um, it's really, these young women answered in this survey that I think 70% of the situations involved heavy drinking. Yeah. It, and it, it's its own pernicious problem. I think one of the important takeaways as we connect these two issues is that in either environment, when you have women, and men for that matter, who can be brave enough to stand up, to call it as they see it when it's happening, also to advocate for and be witnesses on behalf of other people, it can empower other people to stand up and stop it. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I'm I'm on a college campus that has started a video called uh, Step Up that's trying to, to help people know if they see something happening, you know, that they should, they should step up. Um, I, colleges are trying to deal with this. I mean, again, I think in the past, way too many schools didn't want their reputation sullied, and, you know, way too many athletes were involved. I don't want to tar everybody here, but I mean, we've, just had, we've just had numerous cases. I, I think... It is shocking to me as the mother of a of a about to be college sophomore the the level of drinking and and the sense uh, you know that 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 then means you're impaired and that then means that young men apparently there's a there's a disconnect as to what what constitutes consent right so in either case what's critical to recognize here is that um, we have to stop double penalizing the victims. Right. We have to interrupt the process. And we have to help women in particular feel empowered to step up and stop it and to name it when it happens. Well, and I would only add there have to be consequences. If Without you a doubt. If somebody, <laughs> somebody wronged you, uh, something needs to happen. I mean, because if you're brave enough to come forward, if nothing happens then talk about a bad message. Absolutely. Well, Jane, I think you've got a lot of good and really important messages, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. So thank you for joining us on Women at Work. Loved it. I appreciate your your wonderful questions. Thanks so much. Um, That was Jane Hall, professor of journalism and media studies at American University, and I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work. When we come back from the break, we're going to follow up this discussion with the extraordinarily... um, the extraordinary Deputy Director of Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, Emily's a champion for sexual equality in the workplace um, and the Vice President for Workplace Justice at the National Women's Law Center in D.C. We'll be back in a minute. 
You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, your host for today's show, where we are discussing sexual harassment and the legal issues surrounding sexual equality in the workplace. Helping to us to explore these issues and more is our second guest, Emily Martin. Emily is the General Counsel and Vice President for Workplace Justice at the National Women's Law Center. She's a champion for sexual equality in the workplace. Um, as Vice President, Emily oversees the center's advocacy, policy, and education efforts, and works to ensure fair treatment and equal opportunity for women at work. She also fo- focuses specifically on combating the obstacles that confront women in low-wage jobs and women of color. Um, in her past life, Emily served as the Deputy Director of the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union, where she led efforts in policy, litigation, education to advance gender equality at work. Um, with all of that, can you blame me for wanting her on the show? Emily, thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So, Emily, to start off with, could you tell us what really is the National Women's Law Center? What's the work that the center does? So the center is an organization that's been around since 1972, working to expand rights and opportunities for women. We do a lot of policy work. We're based in Washington, D.C., so we do lots of work to ensure that the law protects women's legal rights. Mm -hmm. Um, We also do some litigation in the courts. We do work in state legislatures. And we try to really have a broad focus on the issues that are important to women's lives. So that's women's employment rights, women's rights at school, health care and reproductive rights, and the income supports that are most important for women because women are more likely than men to be poor. Absolutely, unfortunately. So all of these different issues are relevant, but they also come together in creating the landscape in which women work and live. Exactly. Women don't live single-issue lives, and that's why we think that it's really important to focus on the connections between, say, whether you can find affordable childcare and whether you can succeed at work or whether you have the sort of health insurance that lets you address chronic health conditions, that lets you do your job and earn a living to support your family. So all of these questions are sort of deeply intertwined. I want to start, though, by talking about what seems like a simple question, but we know it's much more complex, which is harassment laws. Um, What do they cover and what don't they cover? Well, since 1964, uh, federal law has prohibited sex discrimination in employment. And after that law was on the books for 10 or 20 years, courts came to recognize that that includes prohibiting sexual harassment that is severe and pervasive enough to really change the nature of the work that you do to really change the nature of the workplace. Okay, I want to stop on that term for a second, because I think you just said, put a really important test out there, that it's severe enough to change the experience in the workplace and your success there? That's right. So, So what courts have said over the years is, you know, one tasteless joke isn't a violation of federal law in most instances. The question is really whether there is uh, a severe and pervasive environment of hostility 
that really is amounts to a change in the terms and conditions of employment is the legal is the legal jargon so courts really look to see a, both how severe it is so if you're talking about a physical assault then you don't need to have that happen over and over again for it to constitute sexual harassment. So both how severe it is and how persistent it is. So if it's a more low-level set of comments and innuendos and jokes, whether that happens again and again and again in a way that really serves as a barrier to your ability to perform at work. So in that that test of severe and pervasive environment of hostility. What happens if somebody works in an environment where that's happening, but it's not gender-based? It just is part of the environment. Well, that's a great question. I think that, yes, the the courts look at whether the harassment is based on what's called a protected characteristic, so sex or race or ethnicity. But it's worth pointing out that sexual harassment under law can look different and still be a violation of law. So so it's certainly the case that if your supervisor is over and over coming on to you demanding sex, suggesting or explicitly stating that in order to get ahead, you're going to have to go out with them or sleep with them, that that's sexual harassment. But it's also sexual harassment if, for example, you are getting a persistent stream of uh, insults at work that really are gender-based. So, for example, if you're a woman working in a male-dominated field like construction, you might get a lot of harassment, which isn't so much about, will you go out with me later, but which is really focused on on your gender, uh, epithets that are Mm gender-based, hostility that is motivated by gender, even if the particular statements aren't about sex or aren't about women, and that still counts as sex-based harassment. But you're right that in order for the law to reach it, there does have to be a connection between sex and gender or some other protected class like race or ethnicity and the harassment. And go back for a minute, because and it may be stating the obvious, but I think it worth it's worth explaining a little bit. When somebody is repeatedly being asked out, repeatedly being looked at as a sex object, a potential partner, um, why... Talk about why that is more than irritating and distracting, why it is actually um, an obstacle to success at work and where the issue of power comes in. Well, that's a great question. So um, if you're imagining a supervisor who is continually making sexual overtures toward the person that he or she supervises, um, power is really impossible to disentangle from that relationship. And the message that the person who is being supervised is getting, either implicitly or explicitly, is that your success at work is based not so much on your performance, on your competence, but on whether you are willing to have uh, a sexual relationship or a romantic relationship with your supervisor. So that is an obstacle that historically has been a particular problem for women's advancement in the workplace. It's certainly not the case that only women are ever sexually harassed, but it is more likely that women will face sexual harassment than men will. And when um, your when your success at work gets all tied up with whether you're going to engage in some sort of relationship with the people who have power over your job, obviously that can be a real obstacle to 
to succeed to succeeding at work. Clearly, um, the challenge, though, I think that some people face is what happens in flatter organizations. Um, what happens when there's um, outreach between coworkers? Is 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 it determined? Is its danger determined by whether people are peer? Is it really about direct reporting structures, or can it be kind of diagonal within the organization? So the law looks at um, harassment tw- between coworkers and harassment by supervisors slightly different ways, but definitely harassment by coworkers can still be a legal problem. So the question that uh, courts ask in instances of coworker harassment, where it's not a supervisor harassing a subordinate, is whether the employer knew or should have known about that harassment and failed to take appropriate action to address it. So if an employer doesn't have a sexual harassment policy, if the employer has never told employees what to do if they're experiencing sexual harassment and someone is harassed by a peer, by a coworker, and thus doesn't have, doesn't know where to go, doesn't have any clear recourse, the employer can really be on the hook for failing to have those basic safeguards in place. Even if the employer does have those safeguards in place, if the employee who's experiencing harassment goes to HR, whoever she's instructed to go to under the employer's policy and the employer doesn't respond or responds in a way that is really ineffective and fails to address the issue, then that also is a problem for the employer under law. So when it's a coworker, the legal question looks more closely at um, whether the employer knows about it or should have known about it and what the employer did in response. But definitely, there are still important legal protections against coworker harassment as well as supervisor harassment. If you have a question for Emily about these complicated questions and you'd like to call in, we'd love to hear from you. So give us a call at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. And I'm talking with Emily Martin, who's the general counsel and vice president for workplace justice at the National Women's Law Center. So, Emily, one of the things that we were talking about in the first half hour is that with uh, public discussions of sexual harassment, when we have news cases, um, law cases, legal cases that are making it into the news, it does inspire other people to come forward. I also remember when I was early in my career um, in the early 1990s and Anita Hill, you know, was in the news, um, it prompted those of us working in organizations to create sexual harassment policies for the first time. I wouldn't be surprised if many organizations um, haven't touched them since. As this comes up again, as much as uh, hopefully it's going to embolden women who need to come forward, it's probably also going to activate organizations to say, are we protected? What do we need to do about this? What advice would you give to organizations about um, how to do their own kind of internal check at a time like this? I think what we know about what organizations can do to um, both to avoid liability and to create a culture where harassment is less likely to happen in the first place is that the message from the top really does matter. It's one thing to have a policy written down that's in a drawer that um, nobody really thinks about much on a day-to-day basis. It's another thing to have a consistent message coming from the top 
that not only will harassment not be tolerated, but that civility is expected. So it's not just about making sure people don't step over the line into something that's a violation of law, but people stay far away from the line, and that there is an expectation in the workplace of respect and civility. It's also important for um, for supervisors sort of up and down the, the levels of the organization to be held accountable for, for addressing harassment. So, so to ensure that if a supervisor finds out that there's a harassment problem going on in their department, that, that, that the fact that harassment happened isn't what the supervisor gets in trouble for, that instead the supervisor is held accountable for what the response will be and for ensuring that there is a prompt and effective and thorough response to any allegations. Um, so I think those pieces are really important, creating a culture of civility and respect, which certainly includes not harassing people, but really goes beyond yes. that. So you're not in a gray area in the first place. And to really make clear to supervisors that part of their responsibility and part of what they, their performance will be judged on is how they respond uh, to issues that arise under their watch. Well, I have to tell you, when you said message from the top, I take notes during all of the shows, and I can't tell you for how many different topics I have written in great big letters, it's the <laughs> message from the top. Um, and so it's, I think it's going to become one of our new mantras. Um, in particular, I have heard that about work and family issues, flex time, yeah. maternity leave, um, that it's setting the tone about um, equal opportunities for both parents to engage as parents um, yeah. and how those policies will affect everyone has to be set from the top because, once again, it's about creating culture. Um, how do those issues play out in the work that the National Women's Law Center is doing right now? Well, there are a lot of connections between these issues, and, and part of the work that we do is to um, is to is to try to bring to light those connections because you're absolutely right that what's necessary is not just a set of discrete policies which are important but a cultural shift that happens within organizations that happens within um, within congress that really is about uh, valuing women's participation thinking about gender-based barriers in a, in a broad sense and really committing um, committing to remove this. So, so our work includes not only a focus on sexual harassment, but also a focus on equal pay. And equal pay is a big topic that includes pay discrimination, the sense of women being paid less than men in the same job. That's an important piece of it. But it also includes a lot of other things, like thinking about the family-related barriers, which um, in the long run depress women's wages because women find themselves having to leave the workforce for a couple years because they can't find affordable childcare or because their job has such a crazy schedule or, such, or a lack of any sort of paid leave or uh, a lack of basic accommodations, which makes it impossible to both meet family obligations and work obligations when their kids are young. So th that set of factors also leads to women earning less than men over the long run. Right. Um, and women being 
overrepresented in lower wage jobs. Women are close to two-thirds of workers in minimum wage jobs, for example. So when we think about equal pay and making sure that women are really earning the same as men, we think about raising the minimum wage and we also think about pathways of opportunity so that women aren't segregated into the lowest paid jobs in in our country. In some of the statistics that I was reading in preparation for the show, um, well, of course, there's the issue of women in tech. Um, it looked like the areas in which women are most severely affected by sexual harassment and then the, the consequential impact it has on wages and retention is in areas like construction, transportation, utilities, blue-collar, low, lower-income jobs. Why is it that it's the white-collar jobs, the people who are the most affluent are, that are getting the media attention. And is any of that attention helping these women who are most directly affected by it? Well, I think that it is always helpful when we have these moments of, of conversation about, about harassment and about why it is harmful. I think that the Gretchen Carlson story is especially notable because it's one of the relatively few examples that I can think of where someone who is a celebrity, someone who people respect and feel like they know, comes forward and says, this happened to me. Even, even me, with all the privilege and all the power that I have, I've experienced this. I think that that's a powerful story for women to hear from someone who they know and trust, and that that is empowering for other women to come forward, even in very different circumstances. Um, and while it is the case that uh, industries like construction have really crazy high rates of sexual harassment, where 80% or more of women who work in construction report being sexually harassed. 80% or more? Yeah, yeah, no, it is it is a stunning level. Though overall in the economy, more than a quarter of women report being sexually harassed. So it's a bad enough number. It is unique to to occupations like construction that harassment is a pretty common occurrence. Um, and anytime you have an occupation that is overwhelmingly male dominated, you will see resistance from some people to women entering that field, whether it's construction, whether it's a blue-collar field, or whether it's a white-collar field like engineering. And one of the ways that hostility towards women entering a field is expressed is through sexual harassment, gender-based harassment. And so I wouldn't say that the biggest, the, the primary place where harassment occurs is blue-collar fields. It's it is a problem there. But that dynamic is a dynamic that you see throughout the economy, especially when women are entering into occupations where few women have worked in the past. Right. We know that it exists in banking. We know it's in tech. We know it's in engineering. Right. Um, right. And it Whenever there's a workplace culture that is sort of built around a vision of masculinity, and the notion of uh, masculinity is really bound up with how men working in that field think of themselves, I, I think you especially see high rates of harassment against women entering those occupations. Because that um, highly masculine bullying behavior can be seen as part of the male com competitive culture. Yeah, yeah. And that's why 
investment banking, as you say, is in some ways, I think, analogous to construction as far as the as the level of hostility that women seeking to succeed in that field can face. And so this then comes back to why the message from the top and the culture of civility and respect is un- is so unbelievably important. Right, because these issues are interconnected in, in important ways. Um, if you have a culture that um, that is really suspicious of of women as coworkers, as uh, as new entrants into a field in particular, that culture will probably express itself through harassment. It will probably also express itself through hostility towards. Uh, any accommodation of family obligations mm-hmm. will probably express itself as assumptions that women are less competent, that will be reflected in, in pay decisions. And so cultural change within a workplace, a culture that truly recognizes the importance of um, valuing women's contributions and making sure that women can succeed, not just for the sake of the women, but for the health of the corporation, for the health of the the business venture, mm-hmm. I think, is is important for addressing the whole gamut of issues at work. Without a doubt. Um, I'm talking with Emily Martin, who's the general counsel and vice president for workplace justice at the National Women's Law Center. Um, you know, we we talk about these issues a lot on the show because we know that there's a huge peepee like line leaky pipeline um, through which women get lost, through which wages get lost. And it has to do with all of these issues. How many women make it through the educational system, choose careers where they can have these resources, um, get hired, get retained, get promoted, go into leadership roles, serve as role models? Is there a culture of advancement? Um, And that it all comes to play on changing this. And we know it's not a lever that can just get flipped and have it change overnight. I think it also makes the work that you're doing at the National Women's Law Center that much more important. Um, You must be looking at what seems like a tsunami of issues to address. How do you guys decide where your energy goes? Well, that is a good question. Um, So so part of our decision-making is based on is based on where the momentum in the culture is, is based on the, the places where, where people are really recognizing we, we need to make a change here, that the status quo isn't working anymore. I mentioned equal pay earlier, and a lot of our work these days is framed around uh, closing the wage gap. And again, that includes a lot of different things because there are a lot of different causes of the wage gap. But Precisely because there is such a deep and widespread recognition in the culture now, both by voters and employers and uh, individuals and families, that it is not acceptable that in 2016 women are still being paid 79 cents for every dollar paid to men. And so part of our work at the National Women's Law Center is figuring out how to leverage those broad cultural recognitions and that emotion into into policy change, into laws and regulations and business practices that will really make a difference uh, in individuals' lives and in individuals' paychecks and will will shift the needle in a meaningful way. Well, 
you have this role there. So with the minute or two that we have left, can you tell us how do you make your life work while doing all of this important work? (laughs) Well, in some ways, I'm awfully lucky because, you know, when you work for an organization that's about women's equality, um, that's a good place to be as a woman. I guess the message is coming from the top. The culture from the top is pretty good on these issues. Um, I am a mom. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. So, you know, I'm certainly one of the many, many people out in the world balancing work and family issues and sometimes often feeling like <laughs> I'm perhaps giving a slightly short trip to all of the above. Um, but I, I've been lucky since most of my career has been in organizations that have been um, explicitly focused on thinking through these issues and trying to make sure they walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And, you know, even for groups like mine, we have to work to make sure we're walking the walk. And we have lots of internal discussions the senior staff about things like our internal workplace flexibility policies. Um, and making sure that we are really doing everything we can to address um, to address employees' needs. Um, so, I guess the other thing that I am especially lucky in, but I, I think is less and less rare, is that uh, my husband is really a full partner, and I don't think either of us is the default parent in the way that. Um, Women often are the default parent, where if the kid is sick, it's obvious who's going to go home, and it's obviously the mom. Um, Or if the kid has to go to camp, it's obvious who's in charge (laughs) of getting her back and forth. Um, I I, I think in our relationship, we are pretty equitable in sharing. Well, you are indeed lucky, and we are awfully lucky to have had you here, Emily Martin. Thank you so much for joining us on Women at Work. Thanks so much to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dan Baker, and our new fabulous assistant, Ali Freed. Our schedule of replays can be found on SiriusXM.com backslash business radio. Thanks so much for listening to Women at Work, and thanks so much. This is Laura Zarrow. 